Welcome to another episode of the Social Capital Guy podcast. I'm your host, Bavon Joseph. This podcast is all about what I call the three C's, community, careers, and capital. Social capital is something that we all possess in some form, but it can also be something that is lacking in many communities, particularly those that are underserved and marginalized. However, it is important to recognize that social capital is not just about having a large network, but it's also about the contacts and access to resources. It's about leveraging those relationships and resources to create positive change and build stronger communities. I'm always uh, excited to be in conversation with experts and advocates who are working to increase social capital in their own communities, including entrepreneurs, community organizers, and social justice advocates. We explore topics such as the importance of mentorship, the impact of social capital on business success, and the ways in which social capital can be leveraged to create more equitable and inclusive communities. We also hear from individuals that have experienced the power of social capital firsthand and how it has helped them to achieve their goals and make a difference in their communities. So whether you're a seasoned entrepreneur or just starting out on your own journey, this episode is short to inspire and enlighten you on the power of social capital. So without further ado, let's jump into today's episode and explore the power of social capital. Today, we have the pleasure of speaking with three dynamic women who are each making their own unique impact in the world of entrepreneurship and social justice. They're all friends of mine as well, and I consider them sisters in change. First, we have Halima Nash. Uh, Halima is a speaker, author, and social entrepreneur and founder of Roskrans Ventures, a startup that provides coaching and career readiness to underrepresented Gen Z talent. Finally, we have Brittany Robbins, founder of the Gray Matter Experience, an organization that empowers young black entrepreneurs to, to launch successful businesses. Brittany is a social entrepreneur and advocate for economic justice and has been recognized as a rising star in the world of business and social impact in Chicago. Together, these three women represent the power of entrepreneurship and mentorship in creating positive change in communities of color. So without further ado, let's jump into our conversation with Halima and Brittany. TikTok. All right, so today I'm joined with two amazing uh, women that I've met uh, a couple of years ago, Halima and Brittany. So thanks for joining me. Uh, again, this podcast is all about social capital and networking, the power of networking. So how we met, right, a couple of years ago at the Federal Reserve Bank event uh, for interns and stayed connected ever since. So I've been following you and your journey um, in Chicago and out west as well, too. And Brittany, same thing, we met a couple of years ago. Our organization started around the same time, mm-hmm. I believe. I've, I've volunteered and done some stuff with your young people. Um, but again, I really believe that relationships are at the core of life uh-huh. in business and everything that we do. So I think this podcast is all about me connecting with my friends and people that I know and amazing nonprofit and organization leaders and founders. So Halima, we'll start with you. Just kind of give me your elevator pitch, who you are, what you do. I know you have a long, long bio, but... Um, <laughs> Let's see how we can get it into like 30 seconds. Uh, I can do you better than that. Uh, make it 10 seconds. So I'm Halima Nash, founder of Rosecrans Ventures, and we do underrepresented talent solutions. Basically, that is just helping underrepresented talent thrive in the workforce. Nice. Mm-hmm. 10 seconds. 
There you go. <laughs> what about you, Brittany? I'm the founder and CEO of The Gray Matter Experience, a seven-year-old nonprofit based in Chicago. Uh, we like to call ourselves the space for young black innovation, um, but we are really designing programs and opportunities for young people to learn about entrepreneurship, have an opportunity to start their own businesses. Nice. So first question, and anyone can jump in here, but as um, founders of your own companies and organizations, can you share a little bit about your personal story about how you arrived at where you are today? What like sparked your interest in like giving back and having a social impact, especially with young people? So maybe Brittany, because how would you like Sure. Um, I'd like to say my journey started in the household. I had two parents as entrepreneurs, so I saw that as a pathway, um, but also saw them struggle through the process of building businesses. Um, and after going to college and sort of flubbering my way around, trying to figure out what I wanted to do, um, I'm initially from Quincy, Illinois, so there wasn't a ton of opportunity or exposure or really anything there. Um, so I didn't know what was possible for me. But upon graduating college and moving to Chicago, um, I immediately started working in the nonprofit space uh, and working for another nonprofit that did entrepreneurship exposure to young people. Um, and so, A, I saw the opportunity, right, to really give these students an experience, an opportunity that could help propel their futures, but saw a huge gap in how folks were doing that um, and how students were connecting with it. Um, a lot of times when entrepreneurship is taught to young people, it's from this theoretic perspective of like you too can be a business owner one okay. day um, but they don't really get an opportunity to play in that space they don't get an opportunity to explore what that looks like for them they really don't get an opportunity to hear from people of color who built businesses um, and then they don't get an opportunity to actually have money and resources to see what that experience looks like so um, for me coming into the space and see that that was a sort of uncharted territory. I really wanted to think about how I could build something that would be of value to young people, that would also be a value to our community, um, to create sort of this pipeline of folks who had exposure early on to what business and economics and building a business looks like so they could have an opportunity to fail fast, to fail early, um, to build networks throughout their um, lifeline of running a business and learning about business. Um, and do so in a way that was culturally sensitive, um, relevant to what you know kids wanted and wanted to experience, but also, again, ground them in this opportunity of, of business development, economic development um, with a cultural lens. And so that's sort of what brought me into the work. Um, and then seeing how students respond to it and seeing the pathways and opportunities that it's opened up for them in the process has made me all that more like excited about the work that we do and wanting to continue to like refine it and tweak it to make sure it is the experiences that they need um, and that our community needs to sort of speed up this timeline that we got to uh, build wealth. Yeah, and I strongly believe in the kids can be what they can see. So I think um, when it comes to entrepreneurship in particular, I feel like that's the force multiplier when it comes to building generational wealth as well. You know, and I've met the young people in your program. I've seen the ideas that they have. And um, to your point, like they have to see people like yourself and Halima doing this stuff, right? Yeah. Representation matters. Kids need to see people who look like them in their communities, helping build things for their communities. So Halima, what about you? Um, well, first, let me say congratulations on seven years. Thank you. Oh, yes. Great matter. Congratulations yeah, on birthday. seven years. <laughs> yeah. Greenwood. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, I, you know, entrepreneurship really is about um, 
thinking of an idea that can solve a problem and figuring out how to monetize it, right? You know, or how to create social impact if you're in nonprofit. And for me, um, I had spent 12 plus years in some form of workforce development, workforce development in sports, building internships, right? Workforce development in public housing, helping public housing students get access to summer jobs, right? Or, you know, being in the mentoring space and giving corporate cats an opportunity to connect with young people that one would one day be in those seats. And when the pandemic started and I had my side hustle, which was mm -hmm. Rosecrans Ventures, this was, I was doing professional development and I was really thinking about how my work in workforce development can touch those people that I didn't necessarily see represented. You yeah. talked a little bit about representation. I was just floating through all of these programs that were so focused on high performing students. Mm. Um, so focused on those students that, you know, were already getting good grades and they just needed kind of an extra leg up. But I thought about those young people that had in between a 2.0 and 2.5 mm -hmm. that were wildly ambitious. You mm -hmm. think about those public, uh, public housing kids that, you know, they are really brilliant at certain things, but their standardized test game might not be that great. So how could I get internship opportunities for that population of people? I always had a mind for the marginalized. Mm -hmm. I always had a mind for people that operate in the margins. And so when I built Rosecrans Ventures, it was this idea of how can I help people to thrive in career, to access quality careers that might not have an amazing career center on their college campus mm -hmm. that might not have access to resume development help, that might not have uh, parents at home that are going to a corporate job that can talk to them about how to navigate their internships. And so that's how the idea really started as a side hustle. And then in the pandemic, when you know the economy was doing what it was doing um, and I had a decision to make after I was laid off, do I want to go back into the market mm. or do I want to bet on myself the way that I'm asking companies to bet on these young people? And I decided to bet on myself and build a business that was really focused on helping people in the margins to thrive in career. Well, I'm glad you took a bet on yourself because I've been following your story and you guys have been doing pretty well. So, um, <laughs> but to your point of, um, I tell companies all the time, so I was placing interns in financial firms, right? Mm -hmm. And there's always a story behind every GPA. Right, so there's some firms the minimum GPA just to apply is 3.7. Mm -hmm. I'm like, you're gonna be struggling to find talent, especially diverse talent and other just kids in general who has an average 3.7, right? Mm -hmm. And these companies, I would tell them, like, listen, I'm finding young people, getting them ready, and bring them to your doorstep. I just want you to say yes to the opportunities so they can prove what they can do, mm -hmm. right? But somebody has to tell their story, and the GPA was always a thing, so we got them to like say, okay, let's get these kids in the door. Let's give them an opportunity. And we were doing the work to get them ready for those careers like you guys have been doing. And once they met them, mm -hmm. the doors flung like wide open. Mm -hmm. We started with five kids and then oh, like 800 later, right? Mm -hmm. And um, 100 plus alumni working in finance all over the, the country now. Otherwise, would not Bravo. have, yeah. would Bravo. Not have yeah. gotten a look yeah. to your point, Absolutely. right? So I think um, social capital plays a big part in that. So maybe talk about your own story of like mentors. You mentioned mentors. Mm -hmm just connecting with people. Again, you and I stay connected all these years as well. Mm -hmm. 
I want to be doing stuff on the West Coast. I'll be calling you up and say, hey, this is what I'm doing. Mm -hmm. So talk about the power of social capital for you as an individual as well. You know, and, and I love that this is called the Social Capital Podcast because we throw around, you know, your network is your net worth, yeah. right? You know, we throw that around, but, you know, how to make that actually mean something if you don't have a LinkedIn page or, you know, I'm dating myself, a Rolodex, <laughs> um, or if you don't have a strong following of people that you can reach out to. For me, uh, this journey in like developing a strong social capital portfolio really began in growing up in Compton, right? You know, I think that we know all too well, there are these transferable skills that I think people don't talk about enough. I think that networking really is natural to people who live in urban areas. You know, your grandma telling you, you better know the bus driver's name, mm. right? You know, you better make sure that when you go to the store and get my single cigarette, you know, ask Reggie <laughs> <laughs> if you can get two and I could pay him later, right? Like it, it takes relationship development it takes sort of conversation so the key is really you know connecting what is natural to people who are in spaces to things that will make them successful in other spaces mm -hmm. and so for me i kind of took that transferable skill to college and you know when it was time for me to be in the school of business and they were talking about networking it was like oh yeah i got this in the bag like oh i just have to figure out a pitch okay cool and so when i was in the school of business i really i really just soaked up this idea of taking what was natural to me in like braiding hair and, you know, interacting with my clients at that point in time or being in drill team and, you know, sort of being in spaces with other drill teams. Like a lot of things that were my experiences in the neighborhood, taking that into my internship experience, mm -hmm. um, taking that into how to meet people and be confident in who you are. Like, you know, I'm from Compton. So we had NWA, we had Dr. Dre, we had all of these people like Venus and Serena showing up with their beads, right? Mm -hmm. Like that was confidence in this space that didn't look like them. And so that translated into how I thought about career and what I was really interested in. I was going to a high school not too far from Howard University's campus, uh, Benjamin Banneker High School, talking to them about how they can translate who they were in mm -hmm. community to those spaces. And so I think that for me, that, that kind of evolved. And so now here I am as an entrepreneur that is focused on helping people in career spaces. And I can use the network that I built at the Chicago Bulls, yeah. right? Because it wasn't an opportunistic thing. It was just how do I build, how do I show up excellently? How do I make sure that if I leave this space, that there are people in this space that will have great things to say about me and about my work ethic. And when you do that in every single space, that's what people are gonna remember about you. And it's not necessarily anymore about how much you can network with your business card or your LinkedIn page. It's about the people that are thinking about you and are coming to you for opportunities because you are literally building social capital with the excellence that you bring to spaces. And you're building a narrative about yourself, right? So Absolutely. Think, like you said, everywhere you leave or you go to work or you, I tell young people all the time, your network is gonna open up doors for you that your college degree just can't. Mm -hmm. For sure. You know, mm -hmm. people are gonna remember you in spaces, right? And mm -hmm. you you show up on time sometimes mm -hmm. and that's all it takes. Yeah. Like you put the work in, right? Yeah. So I think um, I, I just preach that to young people nonstop. Mm -hmm. And to your point of like staying top of mind, right? So mm -hmm. my phone and email doesn't stop just like you guys, I'm sure with your mentees and, and students that you know, mm -hmm. but what makes you think about that student for that opportunity? Mm. Right? It's because, yeah. mm -hmm. and there's an art to networking as well, right? Mm -hmm. You don't just yes. like harass mm -hmm. people all day long, but right. mm -hmm. 
updates on LinkedIn mm-hmm. and just, hey, how are you doing? Or mm-hmm. Merry Christmas, whatever, whatever, whatever it is, but just stay top of mind. Mm-hmm. Yes. And it comes to practice, mm-hmm. you know, we've been working for a while, we kind of know what to do now, but young people in general, need to understand the art of networking. Yeah. Yes, yes, because it's it's bigger than, it's more than just the connection. It's easy to make a connection, yeah. but can you cultivate relationship? Because when you cultivate relationship, now, you know, this is a person who knows me, they know how I show up, right? They know that I'm showing up in, in their space, mm-hmm. right? To better understand them and relationships, not just connections, relationships is what'll actually take you far. Yeah. What about you, Brittany? Personally, mentors, that kind of thing, um, building your own social capital to help you start your business, grow your business. I know you're doing other things as well, too. I was saying earlier, you're on every billboard in Chicago and every bus stop, it seems like I see your face everywhere. It's getting ridiculous. <laughs> it's getting really Everybody ridiculous. knows you, so talk a little bit about your own experience with social capital. Yeah, it's actually really funny how it's all evolved. I was listening to Halima as she was explaining this, and I'm like, when did it click for me? Because I didn't have those early experiences and exposure to what networking even was. Um, I am an introvert for one, oh, and I grew too. up in. A <laughs> <laughs> I have a podcast, right. yeah. and I grew up in a very small town where everybody knows everybody. So that wasn't also, you know, a thing. Um, and so when I. What wouldn't clicked for me um, when I graduated college and I moved to Chicago, um, I had a boyfriend that was in the scene, like in the social scene and I built a lot of relationships through just being out and about in Chicago um, and wasn't thinking about career, wasn't thinking about what was next for me, was trying to figure it out for sure, but I had no like career aspirations. Um, it was just like, I'm in Chicago and I'm trying to figure out what my life is gonna be. Um, and now I look back at that time and I'm like, that was my first network that I built here in a new city where I was making a name for myself. Um, and a lot of those initial relationships, Halima being one of them, right, Um, are 10 plus year relationships now that have helped to open doors and pathways. And that wasn't, you know, business, it was personal, right? And so that's what I always try to underscore, underscore to students too, is it's not always about a relation, like a, a business exchange, right? right. You, you do have to build those personal relationships with folks and it's really what is the value that you can bring in the spaces that you enter? And how do you, again, leave those spaces with somebody being like, I don't like them. I don't know what they're going to do, but I want to help them or I want to invest in them or like, I got somebody that you should meet. That is the energy that I try to get my students to embody so they can bring into that room. Whether you know exactly what you need right away, whether you know exactly who in that room to talk to, you may not know that, right? But you do know who you are. You know what value you bring into these spaces. And so leading with that will lead you to the right person. And I have to, you know, constantly underscore that to them in this world where everything is quick microwave. I want it right now. And what do you mean? I got to build this relationship with this person. It's going to take me three years to get this door open. That's just how it works. Right. And so really underscoring to them about this, this concept of relationship building and how powerful and magical it becomes, because not only are people putting you on another value add that you can play. And one thing that I love being is a connector. Mm-hmm. Um, there is no way I could utilize 
utilize all the resources and people that I have in my network. So how can I be a good steward of my resources, um, as I like to say, and, and pass those relationships on and make sure that people have what they need. Um, and that also keeps you top of mind in people's mind. Like, oh, I remember they connected me to so-and-so and now I have an opportunity for you, right? And so I think it is, to me, that's first and foremost is really what what is the inner exchange uh, between you and another person and how can you leave that space and they leave the space knowing like, may not now, may not be now, but soon enough, you know, this is a, a relationship that I can cash in on and one that I want to continue to develop because as you can see, our journeys continue to evolve and <laughs> right. change and what was me seven years ago is not me now, right? Yeah. And so now may be the time to reach out. So it is, it's kind of playing the long game and really uh, getting into it, building relationships for the sake of building relationships, not to need things or want things or have to ask for things from people. Yeah, you know, I think um, like mm. everybody's story here is, Again, evolving all the time, right? I'm, I'm entering a new chapter myself. But I think when you talk about staying top of mind as a founder of the entrepreneur, it's also telling your story, mm-hmm. right? So you got your guy here today with his cameras, right? Mm-hmm. If I, so I get it. I, I, that's, I, mm-hmm. I'm a big believer in telling my story. Yeah. And I think the world needs to see the stories of uh, black and brown kids, mm-hmm. right? And that's the amazing things they're doing and leaders like yourself as well, too. So talk about why you, you know, work, you work with young people a lot, you know, working with like entry level talent and, and stuff now. Why is it important for you as a founder, right, a woman of color to tell your story, social media, LinkedIn, wherever it is, you're on TV, right? I'm glad that you showed up for my podcast. <laughs> you know? So um, why is it important for you to tell your, not just your story, but the stories of the folks that you're working with and helping? Well, I, I think that I, operate as this connection between a population that often feels like they don't see versions of themselves and organizations that often don't hire thought leaders that look like me, Mm -hmm. right? So I think being in the professional development space, it has really been amazing to do workshopping in spaces and people come up to you after and say, man, your energy is so incredible. I would do training and development every week if it looked like this, if it was kind of like you. And, you know, that makes me feel like more people should see people talking about how to level up as a manager, executive leadership, executive presence, how to retain your staff, because there's a lot of sort of like, in the career coaching space, it's a lot of thought leadership that just looks like white women, Mm -hmm. right? So, you know, me entering into those spaces, I think is really important for me to tell the story of what it looks like to be successful in a way that looks like this, Mm -hmm. right? In a way that looks like our young people in our communities. You know, I show up in a lot of spaces, I might wear a blazer, I might have some J's on. Right. Which that wasn't happening when I was doing career development as an intern. Right. right? You know, there was a way Mm -hmm. that you had to look. And I do think that my story, telling the story of Rosecrans Ventures, being in corporate spaces, doing professional development is really important to me because I do think that the idea of professionalism is evolving. You know, the old corporate was dark blue suit black suit, you know, loafers, white shell, Mm -hmm. hair straight back. And it was this idea of muting ourselves in order to be palatable in white spaces. Mm -hmm. And so telling the story of what it looks like to 
roll up in a Fortune 100 company with purple hair and talk about why it's important to hire people with purple hair <laughs> yeah. that look like me. I think it's it's an easier bridge, I think, for both communities to cross. And so I utilize social media. I utilize LinkedIn thought leadership um, so that I can connect with Gen Zers and early careerists and so that I can also connect with corporations yeah. that are reading The Wall Street Journal, but they're not on TikTok. I have to be in both places. You're the bridge. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah and I think uh, companies are looking for that. Right. Mm -hmm. I think. You know, when it comes to recruiting diverse talent and retaining diverse talent, companies are far, far on this side. And they're mm -hmm. looking, and same thing with Greenwood, like we were looked at as the easy button. Mm -hmm. Everybody's mm -hmm. looking for the easy button, right? Mm -hmm. How can we get right. talent in the door? How can we reach them? How we can tell a story, get mm -hmm. our brand in front of them? Mm -hmm. So we work with the high school kids, right? All the way through college. And I was telling these companies, like, stop assuming that everybody knows who you are and wants to work for you. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Not everybody knows who UBS is. Mm -hmm. No shade to UBS, but yes. I'm just saying uh, nobody knows like, yeah. nobody knows these brands, right? I mean, yeah. there's kids that I meet who feel like who think that Wells Fargo is the ATM down the street. Mm -hmm. There's no investment mm -hmm. banking asset; mm -hmm. they don't know anything about that. Yeah. Right. Mm -hmm. But companies, big companies, make these assumptions that mm -hmm. why aren't they applying? Well, they don't know who you are. Yeah. Well, why would they even apply? They yeah. don't, nobody's ever said to them this is investment banking, yeah. asset management, mm -hmm. operations and finance, mm -hmm. wealth tech. You know, there's fintech. Mm -hmm. These companies are making these outrageous yeah. um you know assumptions mm -hmm. but we know that there's a lot of kids out there there's more kids out there uh who don't know about these companies than do mm -hmm. know about them and like you were saying earlier the ones who have those high gpas and they're like mm -hmm. going to career fairs and they're getting all these internships i think they'll be okay mm -hmm. there's the other students right the ones who lack the social capital yeah. to even know the opportunities exist mm -hmm. so i think Brittany, for you again seven years in um this week right and I tell people all the time, like you see founders start companies and organizations and from the outside, it looks great. It looks easy. <laughs> and I tell them the good ones make it look easy. It's not easy, right? Mm -hmm. We're all laughing because we know the million jobs we got to do, right? Mm -hmm. But you're telling your story on, you know, on social media as well. So talk about the importance of highlighting not just your story, but the stories of the young people you work with as well. Yeah, um, a lot of what Halima said. Uh, I didn't realize this about myself till recently, but I am naturally a disruptor. Um, and so that is that is my disrupting things mm. and me telling my story, me giving platforms to young people to change people's narrative about what entrepreneurship looks like. Um, it, it came about just as I'm teaching entrepreneurship, right, years ago um, and trying to orient students to like, all these founders that have built companies as I'm reaching, reaching deep into the bag and I'm mm -hmm. still getting white man, get white male, <laughs> white male, white woman. And I'm like, yeah, no, like this, this can't be all they know entrepreneurship is. Um, and I saw it in action, right? At the last job I worked, we were bringing in all these high level, incredible volunteers to work with the kids. Um, and it sounds great hearing that perspective is great intel to, to mm -hmm. hear, but until I hear it from someone that looks like me and when we did have volunteers that looked like them, the engagement changed, the level of conversation changed, what they wanted to know from them changed. There were no barriers on, I can't ask them about, mm -hmm. you know, salary. I can't ask them this. I can't ask them this. Walls came down immediately and it was just like, so how'd you do this? What were the barriers? Like it was a whole different experience. And so for me, A, I think it's important for young black kids to see um, black power in that way, in the way of building businesses and building wealth. Um, but I also think it's important for us to tell 
tell these stories as we go along so that people have reference points, so that people have a blueprint, so they have the real story. That's that's a lot of what we do in our program is I'm not telling entrepreneurship from the theoretic, yes, this is how to build a business. I'm telling it, taking into account all the experiences that black people actually have as they go through the process of building a business. Low resources, don't have that social capital. You don't have networks. You don't uh, have the ability to go and get a bank loan as right. easy as your counterparts, right? So we're taking that into account and teaching them up front what to expect from the system when they go into the system, right? And so for me, not only is it important for us to tell those stories to them, but it's important to document my own journey through that. Yeah. It's important to document their journey through that so that, again, there's dartboards. There's a dartboard that you can throw a pin at and say, that's who I want to be. I've seen that person. I saw Halima on um, on the Drew Barrymore show, and yes. I know that she <laughs> runs a an organization that helps Gen Z. I want to do that now, too. Yeah. I didn't even know that was a possibility. Now I want to do that. And so I think in seeing that and being exposed to that, it becomes a lot more real, becomes a lot more relatable to people. You take ownership in that and you want to do something to further that mission, right? Yeah. And so um, I've not done a great job of telling my story. I've done a great job of being visible, but I haven't done a great job of telling the story. And as I was writing my reflection post for seven years, um, it hit me, the reason it's so important is like these milestones that we're hitting, right? This year we checked off, we've grown beyond being a micro business. Like 96% mm. of black businesses are micro businesses. They don't get to hire more than five people wow. in the duration of them being a company. We've checked that off our list. We've raised over a million dollars. A lot of companies don't get there, right? And so it's important for us to tell that story so that people see, oh, this is possible. And it didn't take as long as I thought it was gonna right. be, and wow, Oh, this is a young black woman people cannot believe how old i am when i tell them i'm this old they're like you're not one of the kids no i'm not one of the kids uh, but it is it's important to sort of rewrite this narrative and reframe what it looks like to be young black successful um, what it looks like to not gatekeep resources yeah, that you yeah. have access to to give other people seats at the table to think about this sort of collective ownership and this collective building model like it's important for us right now to be visible so we can change and rewrite some of those misconceptions that our community has about us yeah. um, as well as what other people have about us I think it's it's super important um, so we're at a we're at a period of time where things are changing and there are a lot of uh, I think our generation is sort of that bridge generation where we can translate what Gen Z needs and what they need to know and we can help the boomers and the older generation understand how do you better support these folks? Yeah. What are the systems that need to be in place in order for them to thrive in this environment? What are the biases that you need to check in order for this uh, environment to, to thrive and for this thing to work? Um, and I think a, a lot more people are willing to listen now than they ever have been before. So we've kind of got to take advantage of that opportunity and mm -hmm. really move again, move this work forward at the rate in which it needs to move so that we can really start to think about what is it look like for us to have wealth and have seats at the table and and really um, be in position to make some impact for our communities so to your point of like bringing entrepreneurs of color in front of students um all these young people i would meet every summer like they were smart talented they could do the work right the question number one question they had for me was like when i go there will there be anybody who looks like me mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. right mm -hmm. that's that was that's what yeah. they were asking me yeah so that's why we're very intentional about bringing people of color, finance professionals to speak to our young people. Because yep. that was the all those things yeah. went away. Yeah. There was no imposter syndrome. There was like, they were like, okay, 
Yeah, Brittany's over there helping most. Okay, they'll take care of me. Yep. And we partner with employee resource groups really closely mm -hmm. because they were the folks who would put their arms around my young mm -hmm. kids when they showed up. And mm -hmm. side note, I believe that employee resource groups should be funded really well. They should have a board seat I on agree. every firm. I, I feel like mm -hmm. they're the secret source in hiring and retention, but companies Absolutely. don't invest in them at all. That's a whole <laughs> other episode, but um, I just feel very Please passionate about it. Please host that episode. <laughs> <laughs> but um, the other thing that you mentioned, right, about telling your story, and I tell young people this, sometimes there's no blueprint for what you're doing, yeah. but that's your opportunity to become the blueprint. Yep. Right, so I think that's why it's yep. important for you to keep telling your story or tell it even more now, because the things that you checked off that list, like you said, that's phenomenal work like you guys seven years is not a long time yeah. to achieve the things that you guys have done right so i think um when you talk about entrepreneurship founders so let's put like the founder kind of hat on now and i tell a lot of founders who come to me and say hey we saw what you did with greenwood like we raised three million dollars over the last two years right and i tell them i never asked anybody for money we told our story and it was all about relationships Right. Let me tell you about Hayes from the South Side. Let me tell you about this student, where they are now, what they're doing, why I started this organization. And people come along, right? Mm -hmm. So I think when it comes to founders in particular, instead of trying to go out and raise all this money, you should be raising relationship capital. Because mm -hmm. that pays off down the road big time. So maybe start with you, Halima. Talk about um, starting your organization. You know, you're growing. I know you're here in Chicago now for a couple of days. So, um, Talk about some of the growth you're experiencing and how you're leveraging your network, your social capital to grow your business as well. Yeah, well, I'm here in Chicago. Super honored to be at this table, by the way. Uh, here in Chicago, doing a training with the Chicago Bulls, which is the first organization that I interned for, wow. is full now circle. my client. <laughs> and it's a full circle moment because I, I, I think about all of the things that I needed to know as an intern mm. that I'm pouring into early careerists and young talent. And I get to stand in a place to sort of talk about that journey. But growth for me is, you know, it's a couple of levels to it. You know, there's the business growth, there's the client growth, the opportunity to secure more, more clients. But I'm, I'm really interested in clients that are actually really about the work. Right. You know, mm. you just mentioned Wells Fargo being an example of, you know, young people being like, oh, this is just the ATM. So they're making assumptions about what Wells Fargo is. There are a lot of companies that are making assumptions about talent. Mm. Um, there are a lot of companies that are using the cloak of diversity, equity and inclusion as sort of this Band-Aid to fix toxic cultures. And we're start of seeing we're starting to see a major retraction in diversity, equity and inclusion yep. and in HR and consulting and all of that. And what's happening is those people that put on diversity, equity and inclusion as like this cloak. Things are getting hot in Florida. Things mm -hmm. are getting hot in Texas multiple and they're states, taking yeah. it off. Yeah. Right. You know, in multiple states, like now they're taking a the cloak off. Right. Because mm -hmm. this isn't a mandate anymore. So if it's not a mandate, this is not something that I need to commit to. So growth for me is partnering with companies that are very real about creating a sense of belonging where every employee feels the same level of worthiness to be in their seat as an employee and feels like they can show up to work as their full authentic selves. You know, companies that are very real about that, those are things that you can pick up on in 
where they're putting their resources. Mm. That's something that you could pick up on based on the level of supports that they're giving their DEI staff, the supports they're giving their employee resource groups and their business resource groups. Um, and that's the growth that I'm interested in. You know, yeah. that's my North Star. That's where, you know, I really feel like I can do some deep tissue work in cultures to make sure that those marginalized populations, particularly intersectionally marginalized folks, mm. um, so that they don't feel like they're in toxic places where now you're, you know, in the great resignation, you know, now you're quiet quitting, mm -hmm. you know, now your talent is like disintegrating under micromanagement. Yeah. Uh, right. So, you know, of course I have revenue goals, but, you know, I think that my major goals is like growing my company to the point where I have a line partnership mm -hmm. with companies and colleges and universities that are really about investing in the future of work. It has to be in their DNA pretty much. Without mm -hmm. question, yeah. without question. So Brittany, when it comes to like the great amount of experience and growing the organization, right? Um, just on the nonprofit side of things, which, you know, you and I- A whole different beast. A whole different beast. <laughs> um, same thing but applies though, like working with corporate partners mm -hmm. who, so again, George Floyd happened and then we went from 15 corporate partners to 45 in two months. Mm. Budget exploded, right? All this stuff, yeah. right? But my conversation with these firms was like, okay. And many firms are coming back to the table who said no to me before. Mm -hmm. But I'm like, well, let's talk about the next five years. Mm -hmm. Let's not mm. talk about next summer. Let's talk about the next five years, sustainability, reaching yeah. more kids, expansion. Mm -hmm. So again, you have to partner with companies and, and other funders and organizations how do you navigate those conversations around, are you a good fit for me? Because I think starting a business or a nonprofit in particular, I see a lot of nonprofit founders, like chasing firms, chasing money, mm -hmm. foundations, mm -hmm. say yes to everything. Mm -hmm. But at some point you have that power now, right? To say no. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So mm -hmm. talk about that a little bit. Uh, it's funny because this is a very timely conversation that we're having uh, within the organization is because things took off the way that they did over the pandemic, um, we now have more opportunity than we could ever say yes to in a lifetime, right? Um, and so it is this, we're now in a position where we've never been in before. We're like, hmm. What does partnering with us look like? Yeah. Like who who are the people that we want, and what 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 is the return on investment for us besides just a check? I have I have long like thrown that out the window, and I've been letting all the funders know if what you think you're going to do here is just write a check <laughs> and like check it off your box, we are not the organization for you. Um, and so a just really trying to advocate and reorient funders to what it looks like to support a black led organization, mm -hmm. um, and not only for myself for other folks that are in the same position that I'm in, having them rethinking their uh, investment policies, right? What do these grant cycles look like? Why is it so difficult for you all to give us multi-year funding? Um, how are you opening up your networks to other funders? Even if you can't, even if you're not the one to fund us, who else do you know? Right. Um, and just putting some of the ownership back on them to, if you want to see us grow, if you want to see us succeed in the ways that you say you do, that looks like more than just writing a check. Mm -hmm. And I think that is the case on the for-profit and nonprofit side is as this explosion has happen with diversity inclusion everybody wants to invest in buy black all of the things there are real realities for what we experience as founders that are not even being considered that they think mm -hmm. writing a check is a solve for and it's not um, a lot of times it is the social capital right i need more board members i am in a position now we've never had this much money who do we look for for financial uh, management advice and who do we look for you know so yeah. leveraging relationships that we have with these funders and with 
with these folks that are invested in our success. This is a holistic approach to how you support this business. Um, and so I think those conversations are starting to happen now. And again, the folks who are real and um, are, are really invested in doing this work and changing how they do things and being more mindful to the folks that they support, they want to change. They want to hear that feedback. They want that open line of communication. And then you see those who just wanted to write a check and check a box and you don't hear from them anymore, right? right. And so for the, the thing that I'm grateful for is for us, it's been very clear in our entire history who is and who isn't mm -hmm. the right people to partner with. And now uh, we are at this inflection where it's like, okay, well now we have more than we know what to do with. So now we need parameters so that we don't end up in mission creep mm -hmm. and trying to, because what we're finding we never um, set up our like volunteer opportunities for corporate uh, uh, organizations to come in and like send a bunch of volunteers, right? right? So now we get all of these corporations that want to support us, but then also like, what can our employees do? Can they volunteer? <laughs> and so what you'll find um, is a lot of organizations who are already strapped for capacity, already strapped for resources, internally trying to like scramble to put something together that they can then present to this corporation to say, hey, yes, please give us that check. And yeah, we'll do this one day off thing that we never have done before. Week. Yeah. 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 Mm -hmm. um, and put all this extra stress on the staff to do it just so we can get the check. Yeah. I'm right away. No, we're not doing that. Yeah. But what we can do is think about what intentional ways you all can partner with us to, is that adding curriculum? Is that adding, you know, volunteer, like, um, field trips? Mm -hmm. Is it bringing some of your folks out to do a career panel? Like, what are the things that are aligned with what we're doing? Um, and I don't think a lot of uh, corporations are thinking about that. They're thinking about, well, yeah, you should be able to accommodate my employees. And it's like, yes, mm -hmm. and, right? Yes, yeah. um, and so those are the conversations. That's, that's what's happening um, in my space right now as we grow is, is thinking about who, who are the people for us? Where are our people? How do we continue to find those folks? And I am, I, I like to always say, I've volunteers tribute a lot to be the disruptor mm -hmm. um, because I'm also a faith-based person. So I believe that like our people are going to find us. I am not going to live in this scarcity mindset that like if I lost this opportunity or if this company didn't support us because of something I said or whatever, you're not our people. Right. We will yeah. find our people. And so operating in that has also allowed me the space of like not being super bummed out if we don't get a grant or if somebody decided they're not going to support us in the way that I want it. Okay, it must be not the time, but as I like to tell people, stick around. Uh, if you're not here now, you'll be here at some point because we're yeah. not going anywhere. And I, you know, and I love that, Brittany, because you are kind of giving a nod to this idea of like saying no, like, and what you say no to. And I do think that, you know. I also, just on the for-profit side, I don't wanna be complicit in this narrative that if you are a small business or an up-and-coming business, then that means you do things for free. Mm -hmm. And that means that you mm -hmm. do things at a lower rate. I won't be complicit in that narrative. My rates are my rates. Definitely. And I do think in the beginning, I was just taking any of business, course. right? Oh, yeah. You know, I was just, <laughs> all right, I need to pay this mortgage. Of I'm an course. entrepreneur. But I think that over time, it really does become about highest and best use mm -hmm. that's the yes right not whatever projects yeah. are even whatever projects are aligned with the mission mm -hmm. so i love that even in the nonprofit space that you could say yeah. i might not be for you yeah mm -hmm. right and that's okay yeah go forth yeah. and be great <laughs> and i think that you know being selective with with clients is a, along that same line yeah 
Yeah, to your point, Brittany. Yeah, I've seen a nonprofits just like, okay, it's employee volunteer week. Let's put something together. Oh, like, man. no, it's employee volunteer year. Yeah, mm-hmm. and years. Yeah, <laughs> that, that's what we're doing. Like, yeah. it's, it's not because it's so much stress. It's too yeah. much for yeah. a very little return when you think about yeah. it, you know? And yeah. it's, these are huge engines with tons of resources. Let's get creative. Like, yeah. And again, if you're truly committed to this work, and that's what I've been telling folks, is like, this is a long game. Look mm-hmm. how long it took mm-hmm. us to get here. Mm-hmm. To think that we're going to be able to solve this and get ourselves out of this in the next two to three years, you're completely disillusioned. So mm-hmm. if you're if you're locking in, you're locked in. Mm-hmm. And let's really think about long term, what does this look like? Not a one-off this or a one-off that. Like, truly, truly a partnership, a real yeah. partnership. And I don't think a lot of folks are used to folks from this side of the table speaking up and saying that mm-hmm. versus just being like thank you so much for your money mm-hmm. like we will no we're not doing that anymore no. it's toxic no easy button no. in no, these streets no mm-hmm. and you get to drive the conversation i think i've seen folks try to write us checks and then micromanage that mm-hmm. money i was like mm-hmm. well if you could have done this yourself why are you reaching out to me mm-hmm. right or um we know what we're doing mm-hmm. yeah. it works for a reason yeah. and right. you couldn't mm-hmm. figure that out yeah. so you came to us so let us drive this bus yeah or just leave us alone. Yeah. So right. I think the, the ability to say no is, mm-hmm. is super impactful because like you said, they're not used to that, right? Mm-hmm. They're used to driving the conversation and um, managing that money, yep. every penny of it, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. So I think uh, we got to the point too where we was like, nope, you're not a good fit. And uh, we started thinking about who's a good partner mm-hmm. to have, right? Um, so we're gonna switch gears a little bit and talk about entrepreneurship and women in particular. Um, so. We'll start with you, Brittany. Um, I mean, I know there's, um, I've seen it firsthand in the last seven years in the nonprofit space. Before Greenwood, I was in finance and for-profit. I'd never run a nonprofit before. But then I started in Chicago, New York, and other cities running into black women in particular running uh, companies, foundations, um, nonprofits, for-profits. And I saw I saw what they were going through. I, they came to me and, and I helped a lot of them and make intros and help them grow their network and stuff. But the rooms, the rooms that, we go into and um, I see it every day and I see um, the folks who are in those rooms making those decisions, mm-hmm. right? And why they make those decisions and the impact, the ripple effect it has downstream, especially on women of color who are starting businesses. So talk about some, um, some of the, maybe the advice you have for women who might be watching this, who want to start nonprofits, running nonprofits, uh, going through some challenges. Um, so yeah, just touch on that a little bit for us. Yeah, uh, absolutely has been a challenge. I am in entrepreneurship, which is, as we know, white male dominated, mm-hmm. right? And so um, as I got, it's so funny, as I got my start, so I was working for a nonprofit that did similar work. It was run by a, a white male. Um, and as I was planning to start Gray Matter, I was like, it should be easy. I've seen how this works, right? I see how they're getting money hand over fist. Mm-hmm. They're not having to fundraise for it. This should be an easy transition for me. Um, what I did not take into account is that I am not a white male right. um, and that I am a young black woman. And the literally, until the pandemic and until George Floyd's murder, um, we were an afterthought. We mm. were everything that we did every time we went to raise money. It was a question. Why you? What have you done? What are your credentials? Are you partnering with those organizations? Um, uh, what were just why black people? Why black entrepreneurship? That's exclusionary. What? Why? Mm. 
all the questions, yeah. right? To the point where I think the first three years of the organization, our budget was $50,000. Mm. This is program budget and my like living budget. So yeah. I clearly was out here hustling, trying to figure out how to make that work. But it was just constant example after example of that, of um, just questioning my validity, questioning my credibility, questioning how, who am I to be in this space and how are you building this organization with what money, who's funding you, who's on your board. It's, yeah. No one else is getting these questions, but because I'm a young black woman, it's a, it's a whole different beast, right? Um, and so what I would recommend to folks as they think about getting into this space is find your people. Honestly, there are so many people that help to advocate for me, that help to show up. You need a board seat. You need somebody with some presence to show up for you. I got you. Mm -hmm. I'm going to invite you to sit on this panel so that you can be in this room and these people can hear actually how you speak about the work and that will change their mind. So people who just help to advocate along the way, mm -hmm. people who were speaking my name in rooms when I didn't know it. Um, uh, to help add that credibility and validity. Um, and then now that I'm in this space, um, it's, like I said, important for me to take up space and important yeah. for me to reorient and reacclimate people to this also is success. This also is a black founder. This also is entrepreneurship. And I know you're not used to this and I know it's different. And I know I don't have the uh, MBA and the all of the credentials, um, but I'm here, I'm in this room. Um, and I so- so I'm big on receipts. I'm, yeah. I'm really big yeah. on receipts. And so that I think that is ultimately uh, what led to all of this, too. It's like, cool. I'm not one to disprove you all by making a fuss and uh, making a scene out of it. But I'm going to go do the work and I'm going to keep doing the work so that when you go to pull those receipts, you have receipts on receipts on receipts. And not only do you have them physically in real time of the things that we've done, but then you have it um, audibly from the folks that we've impacted and the folks that can tell you about their experiences um, that they've been in with spaces with us and people that I've helped to advocate for and these relationships that have been built. And so I think it's like, do the work, um, but find your people. Yeah. What you Helena? Ooh, um, <laughs> a whole word. I just, you know, when, when I, I think that I spent a lot of time questioning, asking those same questions that black women who are in executive director roles, who are navigating the nonprofit space, all those questions, where's your board? What's your experience? How long, who are your Chicago people? And I started to ask myself those questions because before I had a for-profit business, I was in nonprofit, operating in nonprofit. And so the, the question of like, whether I'm worthy or not to be here, you know, what if we questioned our feeling of unworthiness at the same frequently at the same frequency that we questioned our you know mm -hmm. our legitimacy you know what i mean like what if instead of being like do i belong here can i actually handle this like in instead of easing into those questions literally just be like wait why are are more organizations not coming for us, like, why aren't I getting more dollars? Like just figuring out a way to kind of get into my bag. Mm -hmm. And I think that once I got into that space where I stopped questioning myself so much, where I stopped reinforcing those questions that are anchored in white supremacy, mm -hmm. you know, is it because I look this way? Yeah. You know, and even questioning some of the advice that I got, you know, like I really temper like, 
the things that I, I tell people that are younger than me, I did not. My college experience is fundamentally different than people in college in the last 10 years. Mm -hmm. So I'm not giving advice on ways to navigate college based on my lived experience because it's fundamentally different. Mm -hmm. But a lot of the advice that I got, even from black women about how to be successful came from their success strategies being successful in the in the 90s mm. or even in the early yeah. 2000s right you know i had a, a person who i respect profoundly who i still do to this day who said you know hey if you want to fundraise in chicago you can't wear that natural hair you know you 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 can't do braids during fundraising season mm. you know think about wearing your hair straight you know then white people are gonna be intimidated by those braids and you got a million dollars to raise this year now was that wrong advice? Because that was the advice that she thrived on being an executive director during her period of time. But I think for me, I was able to chew the meat and spit out the bones. You know, what she was saying is like, I want you to be successful in this space that is just not ready for those braids. I am serving young people that are showing up with blue and purple and orange hair. So if they're not ready for my braids, you are also not going to be ready for the sauce that comes with my young people. Right. Mm -hmm. So um, and that's something that came with being a woman in nonprofit. And I will, even with all of that that you just heard Brittany say and you just heard me say Chicago is undefeated in terms of spaces to build a business, mm -hmm. to build a nonprofit, because this is a place that will undergird you with support. Hey, what do you need? How can I connect you with the public sector, private sector? Those tables are all coming together in some way, shape or form. And so being in Chicago, I feel very, very blessed to have built a brand to build le my leadership trajectory here in Chicago, because this is a space that, you know, I'm able to combat those questions of unworthiness with like sauce and finesse. This is like the home of that, right? Um, and so if I were to give advice to women that are coming up as emerging leaders, it is like, question the questions, because those narratives come from a place that don't have anything to do with you. You know, question those feelings of unworthiness. Question whether or not you feel like you belong, right? You know, and then add to that affirmations. I belong in this space. You know, my gifts are making room for me. You know, I am destined for greatness. Like figuring out a way to combat those narratives so that you are beginning to tell yourself and rewire your brain mm -hmm. towards greatness and excellence. There is a way to do that. You're so right about Chicago. Um, when I was starting my organization, again, having never done it before, I just reached out to people who did it before. Yep. And mm -hmm. every single person said, you got to meet this one or do this or do that. And they're accessible. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. You know, and even to this day, um, you know, Jeff Beckham, who runs Chicago Scholars mm -hmm. and all these guys, I mean, yeah. call on them anytime. Like, hey, I don't know what I'm doing here. Mm -hmm. And we're not competing. You know, we're all trying to help mm -hmm. young people. Like, yeah. we're all on the front lines yeah. in the trenches helping young people. And mm -hmm. That's what I see and I notice in Chicago. And I had the opportunity to start Greenwood in New York and I'm like, I'm so glad I did it in Chicago. Mm. <laughs> yeah. Because New York is a different animal. And um, I think, again, the power of social capital and networking and in Chicago in particular to start businesses, for-profit, uh, non-profit, the collaboration has just like been amazing. So Halima, so 
I want you to keep it real for like the founders, right? Founders of color in general when it comes to fundraising, mm-hmm. right? Again, the friends and family round is not a thing, Nothing. right? It doesn't exist. <laughs> not uh, a thing. I know a lot of like white male individuals who've started multiple businesses and mm-hmm. all have failed. Well, guess what? They can get another check next week if they want to, mm-hmm. right? So I see what's happened in my story of getting a, a check or something and opportunity and and I was like, well, listen, I gotta knock this out of the park. Mm-hmm. There's mm-hmm. no failure here. This cannot fail mm-hmm. because you fail once, that's it, right? And mm-hmm. it's just, I was working in finance, so it's a small industry that everybody knows everyone. So um, we put that pressure on ourselves because we see what's happening with like you know, white males, right? Who are starting businesses and have access to that friends and family round. So mm-hmm. talk about some of that, um, in your experience, what you've seen when it comes to fundraising in particular. Yeah, I mean, fundraising for us is is different. You know, for example, you know, we all know the story of the founder of WeWork, mm-hmm. right? You know, they are able to fail and fail massively. And then they could go back into fundraising and raise tens of millions, sometimes hundreds of millions of dollars. And what I found, you know, I'll go into that same space. You know, you, you have, you know, Mr. Adam, who is asking for a hundred million mm-hmm. and I can ask for a hundred thousand. And you know, he might write a business idea on a napkin and that business idea on a napkin gets you a hundred million dollars. And they'll ask me to build a skyscraper with cardboard and duct tape mm-hmm. and then show that people can live in it for at least six months, right? The requirements are just different. Yeah. And so how do you thrive and how do you find success knowing one, that that's the reality and two, that you still have to fundraise? For me, it goes back to social capital. Because I built my business in a city like Chicago, I had a powerful network of people throughout my career trajectory. I was able to go to those folks first Mm. to develop proof points, the proof points that I needed for larger dollars and for different fundraising. But when you can start with those relationships and you have names behind you, you might not have that person giving you a million dollars, but that person is worth a billion dollars in social capital, right? So now I'm a billion dollar fundraiser Mm -hmm. because I have Don and Liz Thompson that are supporting me in the city of Chicago because I have Marty Nesbitt who has a name that carries weight because I have diverse voices and diverse industries that are behind me. And so I would say when it comes to fundraising, I wish that the reality was different, Mm -hmm. that, you know, it is an equitable space. We know how much black women are raising in comparison to white men, what black men, what Latina women are, uh, are, are raising in comparison. And so you have to still figure out how to get dollars. And I don't think that the answer is compromising yourself. I think that the answer is leveraging your capital, figuring out how to do some mining Mm -hmm. for financial capital with your social capital. Yeah, and Brittany, how do you communicate that or message out to your students who wanna be entrepreneurs one day? Because they need to understand like, hey, you have a great idea and this is the way you go about executing it. But at some point you gotta raise money and at some point you're gonna be in those rooms um how do you help them understand that yeah about relationships similar to what you're saying just helping them double down on how do you build those relationships early um and and build them deep right you may not be in a position right now to need them but stay top of mind right Mm -hmm. um i think that is absolutely something we do in our um programming 
and in our curriculum is try to teach how do you be strategic while you network? Um, how do you be relational as you build um, these particular relationships with folks? And how do you be of service in the meantime, right? So that when it is time to fundraise, when it is time to think about what do I need? Um, again, they know you not just for having a handout, um, but for being able to, to uh, exchange uh, value with them. And so that's what I've been trying to teach the students um, and what I'm trying to give myself in this process of fundraising is grace. Um, I think a lot of what you've talked about is so timely, um, particularly what you were saying about asking those questions, right? Because now, now it's on, right? For five and a half of the seven years, I was a solo founder. Mm -hmm. So uh, everything that was gray matter was Brittany. Everything right. that was gray matter was Brittany. We just now got a team. Um, and so now I got people on payroll. Um, and these people are not cheap because right. the, the job industry has changed, right? Mm -hmm. Working has changed. So mm -hmm. people are that not taking part. jobs unless it's at least six figures. So now, now we've got the pressure of um, the budgets getting larger. And now our operating budget is outgrowing our program budget. How do you uh, justify that to folks and then right. okay well now you have more people so uh theoretically that means you should be serving more students right so where's this where's the program growth and so it's just this really toxic cycle <laughs> of how do you continue to keep the levers where they need to be in order for you as the founder a to maintain your mental stability mm -hmm. um, for your staff to have the job security that they need but then again for these funders to understand that again the innate pressures that black people black founders black women founders are under to make this all make sense without having the strategic help, mm -hmm. right, that you all offer and could offer, yet um, you think writing a check is gonna solve all of that and then now I'm left to figure it out. Mm -hmm. um, you also take into account these founders who have gone, in my case, from a $50,000 budget to a million dollar budget in two years yeah. with where's the resources and support to help me map this out and figure this out yeah. we're talking people who don't have mbas we're talking people who are not going to your accelerators and your incubators and your where is the support for them how do you help them to navigate that where do you come in on that and so a that's what we try to teach in the program too is just like take that into account right it's just like these are these are the real realities of like plan for it if it happens fantastic but have a plan for it but then also like i said reacclimating and orienting our funders to how one shift on your end can completely change the dynamic not only for me as a founder but for this company not only for this company but all the people that we serve and it's a drop in the bucket for yeah. you and so it, it's about having for me it's about having tough conversations with funders right now um, mm -hmm. about what supporting black-led minority-led organizations actually looks like and what else is needed for that to lessen the load right just you saying you could fund me for three years, that's one less thing I got to worry about. One less tab that's open in my mind of how am I going to make this make sense. Yeah. Um, and so I think it's, it's, it's important that we tell the people who are behind the table, on the other side of the table, um, what the realities are. Because I don't think a lot of people are speaking up. Um, mm -hmm. You know, a lot of people are just, okay, cool, that's not you, then I'll go here, or I'll try yeah. to figure it out. Um, and I think, again, because we're in this space of everybody's talking about what they want to see done differently, but not a lot of people are doing things differently. Mm -hmm. There's got to be those of us who are in the room that are that asking the questions. I'm asking my funders now, why are you supporting us? Mm -hmm. What 
is the end goal for you? What does return on investment look like? Let, like, let's flip the script here. Yeah. I know you're not used to being asked these questions, but these are now things that I need to know because then I can forecast, okay, how long do we have them for, yeah. right? I can start to see where your intentions lie and not be naive to think, oh, because they funded us this year, we got them in the bag. No, I wanna, I wanna diligence you the same way that you're diligencing me. Mm -hmm. um, and I think it's important to see that and, and really to check into their uh, track record too on who else are they supporting? Yeah. How have they been supporting them? Uh, what are the stories behind that, right? You and I being able to talk about like, your funder over here, what do they look like? Right. And how, what was the, the, the process like? And then you being able to, I'll make this connection for you, right? That social capital continues to come into play and it will always be a, a major pillar, excuse me, a major pillar for our communities because mm -hmm. It's, it's what we need. It's what we need to move the needle forward a little faster. We don't have time to wait. We don't have time to wait for the system to change. Yeah. We got to figure out ways to circumvent it. I think this kid, sorry, just go ahead. Yeah, and, and sometimes you literally have to repeat to funders. You have to repeat to potential clients. You have to repeat what you're hearing them say. Mm -hmm. So here in Black History Month, you are asking this black woman owned business to provide her services mm -hmm. to this multi-billion dollar mm -hmm. corporation for free. For free. Mm. I mm. just wanted to make sure that we're aligned. <laughs> sometimes, yeah. you know, you gotta keep it 100 in yeah. that way because I think uh, sometimes there are organizations and there are individuals that still see black talent mm -hmm. as charity. Mm -hmm. And we have to, ensure that we are flipping and we are reorienting yeah. the narrative for them yeah. that no black talent this is an investment yes. it's not charity yeah yeah That's and i think um <clears throat> to your point all nonprofits and founders of color as well too on the for-profit side need to flip the script on mm -hmm. these companies and again ask mm -hmm. them the same tough questions because mm -hmm. let's be honest companies are in business to make money not give it away correct Correct. Right. And sometimes, and especially in the finance, financial services space, it's mandated that they have to do these things. So again, I have all that information, mm -hmm. uh, constantly reading. I will tell you short story, um, and you guys probably do this, but I set up like Google Word alerts for oh, like, yeah. everything related to my name and my business. And I started getting alerts about ESG reports. So companies were putting our organization in the ESG report, right? Under the social, we were the S in the ESG. Mm. I didn't know anything about this. I just happened to come across it, right? But Good think, Google alerts. think about <laughs> the material impact, the improvement in your ESG score mm -hmm. has for your company, yeah. especially if you're publicly traded. Yeah. Because the E and the G is very easy to measure. Mm -hmm. The S is very difficult, mm -hmm. right? So mm -hmm. nonprofit leaders and organizations need to like really understand the value you're providing to them. Mm -hmm. It's way mm -hmm. outsized what they're giving that, that little drop in the bucket yeah. is. Mm -hmm. You know, you have companies like Goldman Sachs and others you know, unlimited resources, yeah. right? The check that they're writing you is nothing mm -hmm. compared to the value yeah. you're providing because you're giving them, giving them visibility into young people who are starting businesses. I mean, the PR, they're getting out of that. So one question and advice I have for founders of nonprofits are like, when you partner with a company, ask them for access to their marketing team. Your platform is way bigger than mine. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So you, NASDAQ, I need you to retweet this for me. You got 5 million people following yeah. mm -hmm. you. Immediate questions I ask. As soon as we partner, who's your marketing people? Who are your PR people? Can you retweet this? Can we do this? Can we do that? Because mm -hmm. you guys have a bigger microphone than yeah. I do. So use them, yeah. right, to advocate for you and become fans of you and mm -hmm. champ champion your mission. And that's one thing I ask companies to do. Is like, hey, we're working together. I need you to find five companies who want to do the same thing. Mm 
yeah you know call the c over here and, and yeah. tell him like hey meet with bavon and we need to talk about this mm -hmm. so i think um there's a lot of lessons that you guys have as well you could probably share with with founders of um unique creative ways to to, to um, get their corporate partners get to the money get to the money <laughs> right because i think um but again to your point like i started an organization with no experience mm -hmm. and we grew like from i was a solo entrepreneur for like four years as well and then boom all this thing happened i'm like what's going on yeah right it was overwhelming yeah. and um it's all good and from oh, the outside yeah, from the outside it looks great right <laughs> and i tell people um like my organization was like um overnight success 20 years in the making yeah i like that you know what i'm saying that because bar. bars you know so it wasn't like this just happened because i had no idea what i was doing i was yeah. learning on the job but yeah. to your point um funders right they want to like drive that conversation yeah. they don't want to fund general operating expenses nope. they want you to have so 500 kids every summer instead of five but they don't want to fund the thing that it takes to get that yep. that's human capital yeah mm -hmm. yeah and mm -hmm. the same way for profits have to spend to grow same thing non-profits oh. have. it's mm -hmm. the business yeah mm -hmm. you know so i think the way you're flipping the conversation and being very like steadfast like no this is how it yeah. works here mm -hmm. And if you want to help, this is how you can help. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I think just flipping the script on them is, is super important. Um, I think what yeah. you just said is also super important, though, too. It's like nonprofit founders have to start looking at themselves as business owners. Mm -hmm. And so many of them don't. And so many don't operate their nonprofits like a business. They yeah. operate it like a charity. And therefore, that is the cycle that it, it continues to be. I started Gray Matter as a company. It just happens to be a nonprofit. Um, but the way that we move, the way that we forecast, we're succession planning, like, mm -hmm. I want this to run like a business. We just <laughs> happen to have a charitable purpose. Um, and so I, I think it would do a lot of nonprofit founders a, good, a lot of good um, by really studying business models and really being mindful of how for-profit companies work and operate so they can set up those systems and processes and policies early mm -hmm. versus being in this space where, oh, shoot, it finally took off. Now, crap, what do I do? Right. right? Mm -hmm. um, and so I, I encourage, I teach a class about it. It's like, I was just please, to touch no, on that, yeah. <laughs> no more nonprofits. Please start to think about this and in a, with a for-profit mindset because it, it is they are all one and the same. There's there's a world in which for-profit businesses need to operate more as nonprofits, and there's a world in which nonprofits need to operate more as um, for-profits. And there's a lot of intersection between the two, a lot of best practices between the two that need to be pulled and rearranged um, within mm -hmm. each of the business models. But um, there are things to be learned for sure. Um, and I'm glad that like without having the knowledge up front naturally it's just sort of come about where we are able to move um, a little bit more agile because we've operated like a business and not a nonprofit. And I think a lot of nonprofits don't uh, monetize the things that they do well. No, at all. You should monetize. Not even thinking about it. Don't right. even think about no. it. Right? They raise money and they give it away. Yep. Mm -hmm. It's like, no, mm -hmm. you're doing things that provide value mm -hmm. and you should be monetizing that. Yep. Right. So um, there's a lot of uh, you're teaching now. So tell us a little bit about what you're teaching at Loyola, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, at the Baumhart Center for Social Enterprise. Um, I teach a capstone course in strategy and leadership for social impact. So um, folks who are either adjacent to the social impact space in the nonprofit space or in corporate and wanting to make some sort of career shift, um, just trying to learn more about how they can be socially conscious, mm -hmm. um, how they can incorporate some of those principles and practices into the work that they do, how they can be advocates in their workspaces, um, 
but then I'm teaching it from the lens of a black woman who does social impact. So um, the one thing about my course that uh, both classes that I've taught at this point really appreciate is the centering of the diverse voices that I do in the readings, in the guest speakers that we bring in. I want you to see and hear from people of color because I know in academia, that's few and far between. Mm -hmm. um, and so let's again, tell this story about social impact centering these marginalized folks who we don't get to hear their stories often. We don't get to read their text. We don't get to hear about the experiences that they're having, but I want folks in the class to really take that experience away and learn to be better advocates. And again, mindful of the experiences that are happening outside of the spaces that they're used to. So then they can really center and ground themselves and like, what does social impact look like with this sort of impact diversity focus? Yeah. So Lima, as we start to wind up here, uh, wind down, what's next for you, your organization, you know, big plans. I don't, you probably can't uh, mention everything, but- um, I mean, you know, you I'm know. an open book about this paper. <laughs> but, um, you know, the hope for me is, is really to begin to elevate the business case for investing in early career development. Companies should be investing in the ability for their early careerists to thrive in the workspace. And also that is not limited to college graduates. Mm -hmm. That includes people that are changing industries. That includes people that were in the gig economy and now they're coming into the workforce for the first time. And so at Rosecrans Ventures, we really wanna start building more courses that are preparing companies for that investment but then also I do um, I, I do have like a level of excitement for the manager training that we're going to be doing, because we've just been talking about how important it is to prepare, you know, marginalized talent for the workforce. But they're going into a workforce with managers that are not delivering a level of excellence in people management. Right. So how do we also prepare managers for success mm -hmm. for this incredible talent that's coming into their doors? So, you know, Rosecrans Ventures will be deep, deepening that work uh, for the rest of 2020. Changing systems. Yeah. That's I mean, systems deep. change yeah. is, mm -hmm. is the major change. No, definitely. Right. What's next, Brittany? Um, I'm starting to hate that question, so I'm, <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to reframe it just a bit. Um, and that is that is part of yeah, it too, yeah, yeah. right? The pressure is just like, what's next? What's next? I'm yeah. like, I'm trying to stabilize. This yeah. is this is gray matter stabilization year. We have done four or not, sorry, four seven years of grinding, hustling, trying to figure it out. And we have a team now for the first time in our history. And so I'm giving the team time and space to acclimate to take over things so that, again, Gray Matter can start to develop its own identity and Brittany can have her like right, that. Right, right. Um, so this is, this is the year for that, where I really want Gray Matter to um, be foundationally strong in what we do, figure out how we reposition ourselves now at the seven-year mark, um, how do we reintroduce ourselves to the world. Um, but then for me, um, this is a year of self-exploration. Um, I just went through a personal rebrand, so got some things that I'll be launching later this year. Um, and just excited to spend more time sort of breathing a bit uh, <laughs> this year and having a little bit more capacity and bandwidth to think about what I want to do next and um, how we can continue to position this organization for success, how I can continue to be an advocate and an ally for Gen Z, uh, for black business owners, um, and how I can keep leveraging these seats at the table that I get to pull more people along um, and really be a resource to helping people figure this out so they don't have to go through all of the yeah. things that we've gone through. Last bit of advice for entrepreneurs, founders, women, 
students, anyone watching this, corporates, there's a wide audience here, so everybody, yeah. everybody's going to hear it. Yeah, I would just say lean into your sauce. Whatever your sauce is, um, don't function as a person that is trying to be a version of someone else. But mm. there is something very unique to who you are as a human that you bring to the world. Be that. Lean into that. Do not be a carbon copy of what you see on social. Um, it's a lot of brand jacking going mm. on. You see a whole lot of this kind of website, this sort of talking point. But the individualism that comes with successful entrepreneurship and successful leadership, I think, is being lost with um you know, sort of the cut and paste. So I would say your sauce is unique and it, it it literally is a beautiful, beautiful way for you to accomplish success. So I would say lean into that. I love that. Brittany, what about you? Uh, I would say be about what you say you're about. And that is on any side of the spectrum for our young people who I want to be a business owner. I want to be an entrepreneur. I want to be what are you doing to get there? How are you committing to yourself? How are you staying consistent? How are you reaching out to people around you for help? How are you speaking those things, taking classes or getting access, getting on YouTube University mm -hmm. to uh, familiarize yourself with the things that you say you want? If you're an investor or a donor, a philanthropist that says you want to support black people, what does that look like for you? Be about what you say you're about. Have those conversations. What do you need help with? How can I better support you? Who are three other founders that you know that I need to be keeping my eye on? Be about what you say you're about. If you're an employee looking for a job and you've interviewed and said that you can do this job, come in and be about what you said you're about. Um, I think it applies across all genders, races, ages, spectrums, uh, but truly be intentional about what you're putting in the world and follow up and follow through. Appreciate it. So I just want to say thank you. Thank, thank you. you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Um, this podcast is also about me reconnecting and connecting with people who are good for my spirit as well too <laughs> so i think um it's me talking to my friends and the folks who inspire me so i've been following you guys this journey for a long time and i appreciate you know being connected staying connected and doing this as well um i do want to have you guys back again oh, i would love that Say less. Right? Yeah. so um yeah. consider that an open invitation but um you guys cast a long leadership shadow i think mm -hmm. you know sometimes we end up being mentors and leaders that we don't even think we are but a lot of young people are looking up to you guys and um i just want to say thanks for staying connected and being in my network as well i appreciate it um and thanks again guys thank you thank you, thank you.